Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I am not your host, Mark Fraser. I am but an effigy of Mark Fraser. And this week I am joined by the usual suspect, <laughs> Mr. Christopher <laughs> Cusack. Where is Dave this week, Chris? He's making effigies uh, <laughs> and he's already made yours, but unfortunately didn't get mine done in time. That's why I'm here in person. And you are in the Bahamas with yeah, Dave. With Dave. <laughs> but with Dave's effigy. So the real Dave is making an effigy of me. The real Mark is on holiday with Dave's effigy doing I don't know what. Nobody really no, wants to know nobody what. Nobody really knows, yeah. Um, and uh, the only sane person involved in the entire process is our guest this week. Back once again, the uh, Encyclopedia Italiana. <laughs> uh, Encyclopedia Encyclopedio Italiano? Would that be better? <laughs> no, 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 that was good. Encyclopedia Italiana, that's, that was perfect. <laughs> uh, Ferruccio Caccetti. Hello, hello. Hi, everyone. Nice to be here again. Absolutely, that guy's accent. We get so many compliments for your accent, for it. You assume we did the surveys <laughs> not so long ago. Uh, they really? were like, uh, more, more of the Italian guy, and they weren't talking about the drunk Luigi. <laughs> yeah. They were not. <laughs> we've, got, we've got two. We've got the sober Italian guy and the drunk Italian guy. And in this case, you're the sober Italian guy. I can get, I can, I can get drunk on, 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 you know, on, by, by popular demand, or if you want. Yeah, yeah. We, we could probably sober Luigi up by popular demand. All right. Really. <laughs> <laughs> it was just fun being that. Yeah. Always experiment. Next time you come to Glasgow Ferry, we will uh, we'll get you on the we'll get you on the show and get you drunk, and we'll see what happens. All right, all right, yeah, yeah. Why not? You can get drunk on the subscription payments that we use to get drunk. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but thanks for joining Thank us, Ferro. Um, it's your choice this week, but we'll keep that as a secret for now for anyone that's not aware until we get some stuff out the road. Mm-hmm. Mark, you're the host of this show. Okay, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, I want to say. What's up to our Danish friends? We are in the Apple Podcast Charts for Denmark this week, which is a fantastic result. So I don't know if that's because I was there a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if there's a connection. <laughs> I didn't listen to the show when I was in Denmark. Maybe my maybe I just transmit it as I walk around the country. I don't know. <laughs> Could be the effigies. Could be the there. effigies. Maybe, maybe that's where it all began. Um, but yeah, thank you to all the all the Danes for, for giving us lessons. Thank you to all the patrons for giving us money, of course. Um if you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, go to unsungpod.net forward slash donate. And there are two options for you there. There's one where you can go to our Patreon and uh, you can get some really cool things for, for, for your monthly subscription, starting at $2 a month all the way up to literally $10,000 a month. Nobody's done that yet. Um, but if you really wanted to do that, you could. We are going to. Ch- we have mentioned in previous weeks that we're going to change our subscription model. We still plan to do that. We've just been super busy recording. We've been recording a bunch of stuff. We've been at, we've been really hard at it. A lot of research as well has been going on into this stuff. So we will get down to that. We'll get, we will get down to doing that. Uh, and it's a really exciting thing. And we're really thinking it's going to change the level of subscription and and what people get for those subscriptions as well. So a wee teaser for you there. If you don't like long term commitments, we have PayPal as well. Our tip jar. Uh, just chuck us a couple of quid. Uh, we do appreciate when that happens. We should probably push the tip jar thing. Yeah, because. You know, we've spoken in the past there are ways to sort of uh, give the pod a round of applause that aren't necessarily a subscription, you know. Mm-hmm. And one of those that we go on about a lot is please, if you hear an episode, just share it um, or rifle back through the catalogue of episodes. There's 
almost definitely something you listen to in there now and just give it a share and that to us is like a wee pat in the back because it gets the name out there but the other one is go to the tip jar and just chuck a few quid like we're busking podcast buskers uh, mm. that you happen to walk past on your way to work uh, yeah that's also really appreciated because it all goes the same way the only thing is you don't get the, the perks yeah, and a good example of the, of the tip jar is a, a chap called Robert Lawrence very recently just sent us some cash for a beer because he started by going through the archive, got really into Blonde Redhead after the episode on 23 and thought, you know what, I'm going to give those guys a beer. So he did. So you can do stuff like that. It can be a one-off. doesn't have to be recurring. Um, and if you don't have any money, which to be honest, some people don't, like Chris says, a wee share, a shout out to your pals, whatever, you know, sharing something you really like would be much appreciated. Mm-hmm. Now uh, we obviously really encourage interaction with fans mm-hmm. The surveys were really really interesting We really appreciate the people that took time to do that We've learned a lot about the pod from that Because you know when you're in the midst of it It's difficult to be objective So we were taking on board a lot of opinions From our sort of regular guest hosts uh, Ferruccio, Anna, Vicky, Craig um, But also from listeners, uh, people in the orbit of the podcast, uh, the, the surveys were really fascinating. Ferruccio, um, use your beautiful dulcet tones to by telling us about the the album that you chose this week. And actually, I'm so glad you chose this album because this is an album you introduced me to, and I have been dying for you to do an episode about this. So, Ferruccio. Yeah, it's an album by a band which I'm always surprised, you know, whenever I I introduce some friend, especially friends who come from the UK, from Scotland, England or Ireland, because paradoxically, uh, they've been lesser known in their homeland or uh, they're an English band from southern England. They've been, less, they've been lesser known in the homeland than they've been in continental Europe. I'm talking about Sound, The Sound from London uh, and uh, their album Jeopardy. Do I pronounce it, the pronounce it right? Jeopardy? Yeah, it's a just Scottish version. The yeah. sound and their album Jeopardy. Jeopardy, yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's closer to Italian, closer to Italian. <laughs> closer. I, I was trying to, like, you know, imitate some kind of English accent. Can we preempt this by saying, in the era of search engines and SEO, you probably wouldn't call your band the sound. Yeah, definitely. Although, there was that band, remember, called The Music, which is just suicide in mm. this day and age, because mm. if somebody wants to find you online, The Music Band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, The Sound. Yes, not yes. You know what? I, 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 my band is called Cut, and uh, we named ourselves in the mid-90s, and uh, still in the mid-90s, you know, I mean, if we would have done it now, I mean, probably have, would have chosen a different name because there's a thousand things called cut, and very few yeah. of them, uh, very few of them have uh, anything to do with music. <laughs> so, <laughs> so imagine. I know, I know, I know the problem very well. Anyway, the sound, one of my favorite bands ever, and Jeopardy. It's probably my within my top five list of the best post-punk albums I've ever listened to. It's an incredible masterpiece and uh, very much unsung. Um, Here in Italy, they are 
quite famous. I mean, they, they, people mention them in the same breath when they go, you know, in the same sentence where they go, oh, I like Bauhaus, I like Joy Division, I like The Cure and Six in the Benches, you know, those like 10 or 12 uh, iconic post-punk bands, you know. Yeah, so let, let's, for the pur- for the benefit of the, the listeners, let's place them a wee bit because the bands that I considered to be in that orbit would be, well, obviously one that we'll talk about a lot, Echo and the Bunnymen. Uh, Joy Division, you've mentioned uh, they played with you too, I think. There was the Smiths, uh, Psychedelic Furs to some extent. Uh, the Chameleons, uh, Susie and the Banshees, a band called the Comsat Angels, which yeah. uh, I'm sure you, you'll be able to tell us about. Is there anyone else that was? I mean, someone mentioned Early Simple Minds as well. Yeah, I would mention also Teardrop Explodes. Uh. Why are they, they can come in the picture, especially for, for their earliest recordings, you know? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the, the ecstasy sound, or, the, or like, I wouldn't call it influence, because, you know, the, the, the sound basically started as contemporaries of all those bands, you know? So I guess the influences were mutual, at least. Uh, but, you know, the, the, ex- the more psychedelic and popular uh, influences, I guess, I guess that they came about later in the sounds discography, m- mid-80s, like mid to late-80s. They, they uh, disbanded in 87, and uh, the last two albums, I, I think they can we can say that uh, they might have some kind of late uh, guitar pop, psychedelic kind of uh, uh, sounds. They've been added to, to the Sonic palette of the band but uh, but I guess they are like to me they're like kind of the definition of the post-punk band you know they're like kind of the perfect specimen <laughs> you know yeah. uh, so I, I when I think about the sound I think uh, almost especially when you, if you think about their second album which we I think we'll talk about it briefly too I think that's like the archetypal <laughs> kind of post-punk record you know As I mentioned, it was it was you that introduced me to this band, and whilst there's many bands we've encountered in the course of this podcast that have existed in a bit of a blind spot, what I was struck by, in particular within this album and the second album, uh, was the quality of the songwriting. Because there's a lot of bands you, you, you're like, well, okay, that's pretty cool, it's a cool sound, but they maybe just don't have those finished article songs that bands like Susie or The Cure have. But the sound really do. I mean, some of the songs are excellent and that's that's what really took me aback i was like not only have i missed this band but this band actually seems to have all the ingredients they've got a re- you know a lot of charisma they've got a really really great uh musical aesthetic but then they also had really well written uh, pieces and that i mean that was that was pretty exciting like i said that was pretty exciting for me to discover um mark i am going to guess that maybe you were in the same boat as that you weren't familiar with these guys beforehand never never heard them before 
and this typifies post-punk for me uh, in a lot of ways and as a result I really don't like them at all so <laughs> well <laughs> out, of the, out of the box early well see one of the things is we've obviously covered Interpol in the past and I think this is the kind of band that we all know that Interpol are obviously basing their sound on a previous thing I don't think they even hide that too much no. um, and so do bands like Editors and maybe bands like White Lies and stuff like that mm. but this really seems to be the band that encapsulates their things because Interpol had a lot they were a little bit more driving than The Cure they were a little bit more direct and rocking than The Smiths and there were a lot of things about them that you could say oh they sound a bit like that a bit like that but they're really quite close at times mm-hmm. to that combination of flavours that you, that you find in the sound Um, so I guess before we go too far down that Furicho, do you want to give us a very brief uh, little history lesson on this band? Well, uh, they formed in London I mean, uh, uh, the first incarnation of, of what was later going to be the sound was called The Outsiders They were a punk band and they, they just made one album So, so you mentioned they only did one record. Was that Calling on Youth? Is that the yeah, 1977 yeah, yeah. LP? Yeah. So it, it's interesting because I think there were members that went on to be in the sound in that in that lineup, weren't there? But the the reception was mixed. I mean, I know the the album got some good reviews, but also I think it was the NME called it tuneless, gormless, and gutless, and uh, in, in quite a famous review. Which, given what they would go on to say about the sound, which was a continuation to some extent of that. Um, it's it's strange that it jumped so much. Um, how did the how did the membership shift? Because I know that they, they have a lot of overlap with a, a number of kind of quite well known bands from back in the day, including bands like Cardiacs and stuff. I think so. I think uh, the drummer stayed, uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm correct, uh, Mike, Michael Dudley. Oh, yeah, Mike Green Borland. Exactly. Graham Bailey, who I think is known as Green on the yeah, yeah, yeah Graham Bailey, the, the bass player, Graham Green. Yeah, from the first two albums, has been referred to as Graham Green, and then. Uh, um, B. Marshall, I think she's called Benita Bill too. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, in some in some sources, she's referred to as Belinda. Anyway, B. Marshall on the records, and uh, she was the the keyboard player. She joined as a keyboard player. I don't know much about where the the members were coming from. I mean, uh, I think poor- after uh, after the album that we are discussing, uh, B was replaced by Colvin Mayers, Max Mayers, um, and that. They'd come from Cardiacs, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that influenced the sound very much. The sound of the sound. (laughs) Uh, At the same time, they they formed another band called Second Layer. But I don't think this was very, I mean, long lived. I mean, but then the sound uh, basically took over, and and uh, and they went all up. They went up until 1987 as yeah. a kind of like a practicing group. I mean, things were released afterwards. The last album was released in 1987. It's called Thunder Up, and I think they broke up around 1989 or something. You know, the last album was yeah, Thunder Up from 1987. 
so yeah, basically their the lifespan wasn't that long. I mean, uh, less than ten years, and uh, but it was pretty a pretty intense intense ride, especially for Adrian Borland. Uh, I mean, I guess we talk about Adrian's personality as well because uh, he maybe people don't know that he died as a he killed himself in nineteen ninety nine. He was uh, affected with uh, serious problems of depression, and uh, uh, I think also he was diagnosed with schizophrenia as well. And mm-hmm. so he spent the, la- the last years of his life were, were extremely painful and, 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 and uh, full with, with hardships and problems. Uh, and uh, his, his psychological state uh, deteriorated uh, very much. By the, I mean the. At the end of the band, uh, I remember reading interviews with uh, with several sound members talking about the period around 1987, 88, just before the the split. They were saying, you know, that uh, they, they they were trying to convince Adrian to split the band up, <laughs> saying that he needed he needed a break because you know I mean the band that was putting a heavy toll on him, and especially in terms of expectations, and that uh, you know he had. Uh, uh, in terms of recognition for for the sound as a as a group, and that he didn't get obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe that aspects his mental state were starting to manifest because a lot of people said it was something that wasn't really apparent in the early days, but increasingly as the band went on, they did notice his kind of erratic yeah. behaviour. It was always fairly erratic, though, as I understand it. There's a really uh, decent article in Clash uh, by a writer called Robin Murray who interviewed. Uh, Mike Dudley from the band Exactly, Mike Dudley the yeah. yeah, and it's it's a really insight, uh, insightful interview He makes that point um, He's got a really nice phrase at the start On the 18th of May each year Fans from all over the world make a pilgrimage to the pit of Lancashire Known as Macclesfield to pay tribute to Ian Curtis And he goes on to say On the 26th of April each year there is nothing There are no 180 gram reissues No crying fans arrive from Japan No commemorative box sets, nothing On the morning of 26th of April 1999 After dealing with a lack of recognition And severe manic depression He, he in this case being Adrian Borland Ended many years of internal turmoil He jumped in front of a train And... The, the article muses on the frustrations he felt at being that sort of overlooked band of that movement. Um, Robin mentions in that article, the fact they're so overlooked is made even more confusing when you take a look at their contemporaries at the time, all of whom enjoyed much love. They shared their record label with Echo and the Bunnymen, they supported a young U2 and could be bunched in with Joy Division, Simple Minds and the Chameleons. Um, their critical acclaim failed to translate into actual sales but they had a dedicated albeit small following in the UK and achieved bigger success elsewhere in Europe while holding a healthy disdain for their attention receiving rivals of Smiths which was uh, as he put it actually illegal at the time such was the how unfashionable it was to hate the Smiths and I think there is a sense that the band had a little bit of resentment a little bit of animosity for some of their peers um, in that article uh, Mike Dudley refers to Echo and the Bunnymen as a uh, hairdo and the funny men <laughs> um, <laughs> okay okay and uh, there's also a suggestion and it, it's quite interesting maybe Ferruccio you'll possibly have a bit more insight in this than, than we do but they didn't have the lips of Mac the glorious pomp of Stephen Patrick or the ultimate sacrifice of Ian Curtis people go on about how pop music these days is all about image rather than musical integrity but the sound's lack of success could easily be attributed to their non-image, a lead singer carrying a few extra pounds than the norm and a short fuse was not smash hits pull out poster material at the time you know it seems like they maybe just didn't have the look uh, an era that 
you know, you still maybe we like to romanticise it as being all about the music, but the look was increasingly important. I mean, yeah, but yeah, I mean, you can argue that you know, they didn't, I mean, they didn't have um, the image, yeah, the, the look, as you said. Even if if you, if you take a look at, at the Jeopardy album, it looks fantastic, you know. Even the photo uh, in the sleeve, they look like proper, proper gloomy, and uh, you know, they look amazing in my opinion. But apart from that, I think that you know there is a problem with the British press. Because, you know, somehow they have to pick a band sometimes and say, okay, out of 10 bands, we have to pick one that we consider shit and that we, so that we can kind of vindicate our role as, as tastemakers, you know. And I think the sound uh, got that uh, shortest straw among many, many post-punk bands of the era, you know. Uh, Bauhaus, in certain ways, also Bauhaus had a similar destiny. You know, Bauhaus were so much criticized by the British press that... Uh, uh, they even uh, called a public conference with journalists uh, asking them why do you hate us so much what we have done to you and so sometimes sometimes there are sometimes there are you know these things happen with the British press I think the British press doesn't accept didn't accept at the time because now I say luckily their power has diminished uh, sensibly um, but um, uh, the the British press uh, had the power to reorientate really and, and and you know and yeah, the, they were very fickle, especially like yeah. magazines like Enemy, whose coolness came from their their fickleness. And I think exactly you know, when when websites took over, the likes of Pitchfork. Uh, which we'll come back to later on. Uh, the likes of Pitchfork actually started to reflect that same sense of a absolutely the, the the Johnny cigarettes, you know, reviews that are just so derisory that they don't even mention the music, you know, that 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 kind of thing. But I mean, uh, there was a bit of give and take because I mean, Mike Dudley acknowledged that um, when it was put to him that uh, one of the main things about the sound's lack of success seems that. He either had indie bands on indie labels or rock bands on majors. The two scenes were separated. The Sound were an indie band, but on a major, so they weren't taken seriously by some indie fans and they were treated with suspicion by rock fans. It was an incredibly snobby time for guitar scenes. Uh, And Mike Dudley's response is, that's an interesting hypothesis and I suppose there may be something in it. My own feeling is that our lack of further success following a promising start was down to a lack of promotion by the record company, who seemed to prefer focusing their resources on here doing the funny men. Mm-hmm. Um, to be frank, we didn't do ourselves any favours either. We were a truculent bunch, not the sort to meet a record company halfway over anything really. Adrian was often spitting angrily about something or other. A journalist was probably unwise enough to ask him what he thought of the Smiths and I just think he was excoriating Morrissey for being the antithesis of what he considered to be a genuinely passionate artist, like his heroes Iggy Pop and Patti Smith for instance. Personally, I've always been fond of Morrissey's lush and mocking approach, but that was Adrian for you, forceful when speaking or singing from the heart. So there does seem to be, yeah, like a stubbornness and maybe a bit of resentment that built up, you know, by not being accepted, yeah, there became yeah. a bit of an adversarial relationship and it sort of pushed the band, no matter how good the music was, they just seemed to get increasingly further from that point of like breakthrough success, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it was it was it was a matter of being on a major label. The Korova was a subsidiary of a, of a major label, but mm-hmm. equal the Bandimen were on Korova and they had a lot of indie cred back then. <laughs> so uh, they were on the same label as, as the Sound. So uh, I think it's more what what, what you added later. Yeah, maybe the Adrian's yeah. attitude was uh, very very confrontational. I mean, uh, there's a song from. 
um, propaganda, which is the uh, uh, um, which is a collection of yeah. a collection of early recordings, which is brilliant, uh, in my opinion. And uh, there's a song called uh, the I think it's called the Music Business. <laughs> Yeah, it's called the music. Where it, 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 I mean, if you think that this is basically, those are basically demos, but he was already, <laughs> already attacking the music business and um, positioning the sound as as a, as a band was contrary. I mean, uh, criticizing you know the ways of, of the music business, right? So yeah, yeah. I guess I guess I guess they, they contributed to their. Oh, but other bands were doing that too. Think about uh, uh, Public Image Limited. I mean, I mean, Jolin was spitting vitriol against uh, journalists all the time, like, but. It was very common back then to treat like the press in a very disdainful way. It was almost part of the game, you know. I mean, what's very strange is that, for instance, the sound played continental Europe quite a lot. They even played uh, small Italian towns like uh, Taranto or Pescara, very close to where I'm from, and uh, they earned the following immediately here. And they are so popular there, like they were considered. Again, you know, they were talking about Joy Division and the sound as basically equals, you know. <laughs> so it's so strange that whenever you mention them uh, in the UK, you often get uh, people saying, oh, no, but and I've never heard of them, you know. And I think one reason was, you know, the, the British press was always panning the sound for having like childish, uh, basic lyrics, you know. For instance, they, they attacked this song called Missiles mm -hmm. from Jeopardy. says whoever whoever uh, uh, beats those besides when you know what they can do you know it's a very okay it's a very simple lyric you know and uh, they, uh, he was ridiculed so much Adrian Borland for these lyrics you know saying oh it's so naive you know but I think that was coming with the times because there were very cynical times the post the punk and post punk era we were coming from, from like a rejection of the love and peace era from the 70s and the hippies you know so he was sending such a anti-war message you know and so that was considered as a naive and uh, you know almost like hippie attitude it's strange because that song the impression it left me with was incredulity you know it's not so much that he's trying to make a really insightful political point it's just an incredulity exactly the fact that someone can make a weapon that causes that much destruction like who who's doing this and yeah, I can appreciate how on one hand that could be taken as being a bit glib, you know, my favourite word, um, mm -hmm. because it's a bit easy, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a sound bite, but also it, it is quite an honest expression of just the disbelief that you feel at the fact that there are people out there quite happily going about their daily business nine to five, making things that are dropped on kids. And that is something about this band. There's a lot of um especially in this early period, what we'd call like piss and vinegar, you know, that a lot of like not directionless, but just general frustration and a bit a bit of fury that seems to be sort of progressively supplanted by a bit of melancholia and a bit of uh, introversion. And that is also coincidentally when his mental health problems started to become more apparent. When he wasn't facing, when he wasn't focusing that energy outwards, when he started to turn it inwards, um, it seemed like he just overall got darker and more troubled and 
more cantankerous with with the press, and it's quite interesting to see that energy instead of projecting out the way. You know, instead of being exothermic, become endothermic and cause all those problems. Exactly, of, of, of uh, as you said. As you said, I think that that simply is saying, you know, we should think about what we do in, uh, in our jobs and uh, do we contribute to the good or to the evil in this world? You know, should, should we? Maybe we should take a stand, even even if our, in our normal lives seem to have nothing to do with the, what's happening in countries who are war stricken or. Uh, but actually, we do have a responsibility, you know, and uh, we can act somehow. And I think that song, in, in its very simple terms, basically is asking that question, you know. And uh, But back then, I think very cynical times, like, you know, the, the punk and post-punk era, and uh, as a reaction to the uh, peace and love and the hippie, you know, I think that was that was taken as a, as a, a ingenue and naive uh, uh, lyric, and that's all, you know. Um, but uh, again, you know, he was... Very ridiculed, the single in particular, you know. It seems like that criticism kind of cut him pretty deep. From from what I can tell, just piecing that, this overall picture together of this guy who felt that the band maybe deserved the attention of some of their peers and they were getting mocked and he was having his own personal problems with depression and they were having an acrimonious relationship with the press and it seemed like a little bit of a cycle of frustration that just produced some very negative results and then carry that through post-band into his private life to the point where he ended up taking his own life and he threw himself in front of a train at Wimbledon Station, I believe, in London. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it is it's a really tragic and sort of, at times it sort of reminds me of the guy Frank Grimes from The Simpsons, who I honestly think he's like one of the underrated popular uh, you know, pop culture characters, right? This this character who's intelligent, who knows everything around him is ridiculous, and who gets incredibly frustrated and ends up basically leading his own destruction through his own frustration at the injustice around him and his sense of, you know, I should be doing better, I deserve to be doing better, and the fact that he doesn't get the breaks leads him to destroy himself. And you know, I, I don't mean it in any way disrespectfully. In in the case of Adrian, I think that's, that I think Frank Grimes is a brilliant character and. Uh, as a metaphor for this, this guy seems like a combination of mental illness and frustration just led him down a really a, a dark path, and it's a shame because he had so much to offer. I don't know if if there were other problems, maybe more private problems that led him to this uh, choice uh, of taking his life. You know, I. Um, I don't know about that, but certainly, I mean, uh, from from all the reports we got from people who were close to him, the frustration, that the arc of, of his band, you know, for the lack of recognition of his band, was a important part of his state, uh, you know, and to, especially towards the end of, of his life, as, as you said. So, um, in terms of the argument for this being an, an, an unsung classic, I think we, we need to just take a quick dip through the, the catalogue, and we, we'll, we'll do it briefly, Um Obviously, this was the first album, but prior to that, I know there was an EP that you hold pretty dear for it, Joe. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course, uh, Physical World, uh, which uh, clearly shows, I mean, uh, together with the uh, uh, propaganda sessions, which uh, about which I think maybe we talk later, but, you know, uh, it clearly shows the the there were a band coming out of the punk era. You can hear uh, uh, the influence of bands like uh, the early Budscocks, uh, of Stooges, uh, yeah, of course. And 
and uh, also also she want bands like 999 or you know it's very damned it's a pretty direct uh, powerful uh, I would say more punk than post punk track I love it and you know I love the entire EP and uh, it's very unpolished I think uh, one of the best things about the sounds sound <laughs> at the beginning of their uh, of their career was that it was pretty direct and 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 garagey you know Mark, I'm curious, did, did you get a lot out of that EP? Because that, I would have thought that would be more up your street. Um, not really, to be honest, although I did really enjoy Physical World. I think it's a really good song, and it does pop up in Propaganda as well. Unwritten Law, obviously, is uh, is also is also on Jeopardy. On Jeopardy yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, I mean, we obviously, we, we skipped by Jeopardy, which came out in 80, and we get to the, the big one from the Lion's Mouth in 81, which is... If you look up the band, this tends to be the one that's plucked out of the discography. It's uh, you know it's held as one of the unsung records of the post-punk era. It seems like there's a consistent narrative that it was slightly overshadowed by Heaven Up There by Echo and the Bunnymen that came out in the same year on the same label. And I think the band themselves feel that Karova put a lot more of their efforts and their money behind that. But over time, From the Lion's Mouth has attracted quite a kind of cult following. It's, it's a really good record. I understand your choice, but in terms of this album itself... What are your feelings on it? I mean, I, I, when I got from the Lion's Mouth, I got a bit disappointed because one of the things that I liked about Jeopardy was the uh, the minimalism, the sparseness of the sound, uh, the the fact that uh, there was a lot of dynamic, you know, in terms of playing, in terms of in terms of uh, you know, and the variety and the variety of the songwriting, you know, and and the fact that the, they retained all this punkish energy, you know, even if they were a, a post-punk band, you know, you 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 can hear that on Jeopardy. Uh, I have to say that when I got from the lion's mouth, I got a bit disappointed. All of my friends, like all my the the, the, the few like postpone gurus, you know, older than me, were saying, "Oh, the record is from the lion's mouth." I mean, I said, "Okay, this is great," but you know, it doesn't uh, make me punch the air <laughs> the way that because you know, probably it's more solemn. I mean, it's been produced by Hugh Jones, who's who's one of the the. the, the mainstay producers of, of post-punk in general. He produced, he produced everyone from the Simple Minds to Tearbrook Explodes to Econ the Bunnyman, you know. Uh, so, you know, it's it's, it's a proper post-punk record. I guess, I guess it's their uh, pornography, you know, for, uh, you know, pornography by yeah. The Cure, like this sla- slab of grim noise, very uh, coherent from beginning to end, you know, in terms of sound, in terms of songwriting, in terms of atmosphere. It's a great album. It's a monolith, you know, of post-punk sound I mean given that from the lion's mouth certainly in most people's eyes seems to be their you know their haymaker punch you know they took all of these things they refined it they got it produced in such a way it was really I I don't mean make or break but it was a record that I think they expected to break them when Mm -hmm. they heard it and then the fact that 
whilst it was very well received, it didn't have that effect, at least not in the UK. Um, it seems that that then fed into All Fall Down, the album that came after, which apocryphally is the album where they tried to make uh, an anti-commercial record. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily quite as simple as that. I mean, reading interviews no. um, with Dudley, he he says that the process of doing that album was complicated by what they felt was a lack of faith in their artistic abilities by the label. They found that quite disappointing, and the the results were somewhat affected by that. A mixture of them maybe trying to make stuff that was quite palatable, but then also trying to push back against the lack of support they were getting. So it's quite muddled in sound. What are your thoughts on All Fall Down? Because it does seem quite a controversial one in their catalogue. Yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, I don't think it's such a, an uncommercial album as they, they claim. I mean, uh, probably because I'm very used to very obnoxious sounds in my life, so it doesn't sound the, so... The, the, the band seem to stand by it. I mean, certainly some of the electronic aspects yeah, in it yeah, yeah. look on quite fondly. Yeah, no, I think it's a pretty good album. I mean, uh, between Jeopardy and For the Rounds Mount, there is uh, B. Marshall, the woman who was playing keyboards on the, on the first album, was substituted by the new keyboard player, Max Meyers, and I think that influenced the sound very much. The sound became more, much more 80s, <laughs> whether B. Marshall had this like almost 60s, farfisa, almost garagey sound that added to this rawness, Quite you know. Harsh, yeah. Yeah, harsh. I love that, you know, I love that dynamic that she, she brought to the band with, with her sound. And um, Max Meyers, is a great keyboard player uh, very revered by a lot of <laughs> post-punk uh, new way keyboard players but his sound is like typically 80s post-punk sound and you can hear it on All Fall Down as well you know uh, I mean uh, the title track All Fall Down is brilliant I think and also the second one Party of the Mind I think is called I think it's a pretty good record. Obviously, it doesn't have like the the singles, you know, like you know, Dark Cage or uh, Heyday, or you know, it doesn't have like the songs that really stick in your mind, you know. But I think that it's it's a pretty good album, and uh, you know, perhaps. Uh, um, we started that uh, descending uh, trajectory in terms of uh, momentum for the band, you know. Uh, but uh, I think it's a, an album that should be reassessed in, in positive terms. I agree with you. I don't think it's as anti-commercial as perhaps it's portrayed. Maybe that's just a convenient narrative for people that want to write about it. I think All Fall Down's pretty strong. The tones are really nice in, in the record, especially in that one. And there's a couple of really interesting inclusions throughout it. Monument has acoustic guitars in it, and there's a kind of weird heavy piano thing, motif thing in the in the verses of uh, In Suspense. It's definitely a little more indulgent, but it's it's not hard listening. Usually when I'm listening to, when I'm doing this podcast, I'll make a playlist of all the songs stand out to me, like throughout a band's discography, and there's none from this record for me. Oh yeah? Yeah, I, I, like, I, I listened to it a few times and nothing stuck, absolutely nothing stuck for me in this one. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's uncommercial and I wouldn't say that it's unlistenable or, I mean, there are songs that could conceivably be singles on this, to be honest. So I think the narrative of it being not quote unquote commercial is is probably a bit bollocks to be honest, mm-hmm. but it's certainly more challenging, I suppose, than yeah, yeah, um, of course, contemporary contemporary music of that kind would have been at the time. 
But yeah, of all the stuff they've done, I would say this is the weakest, in my opinion. Interesting. Um, Ferruccio, did they follow that with this cover Keeps Reality Unreal EP? Is that a collaborative thing they did? Yes, it's. I have, to, I have to be honest. It's the record that I have never listened. <laughs> so I don't have an opinion to, about this one. Because I know it's not like uh, canon for them necessarily because it was done in conjunction with someone else. Um, but that was '83, and then in '84 they brought out Shock of Daylight EP, which you already mentioned, which is like it's actually quite an interesting little EP. I It's quite aggressive for the get-go. Um, that's on Golden Soldiers. Really yeah. comes fly, flying out. The trumpets are really good in that. It's quite interesting brass. The tones, again, the bass tone uh, and the fact that the bass is the lead in Longest Days is like a bit of a precursor for what became the sort of noise rock sound. Um, there's quite adventurous arrangements. I think Counting the Days, yeah. uh, a track that actually, that became the title of one of their collections later on, didn't it? I, I actually felt that was where the XTC vibe was maybe noticeable. Um, had a really hooky verse, albeit set against uh, really quite morose lyrics. And at times the production was quite reminiscent of uh, poppier Cure stuff. Um, and you mentioned the track Winter, which is a standout interesting song from that because of the arrangement, really moody and slow. does somehow have the qualities of some quite big 80s pop uh, within that. Um, it's actually quite a, quite a fascinating little release and I feel like it had the makings like it had the bones of a good album, it's odd that it Exactly. Yeah. I think yeah, it, it, it's a mini album you know, it's, it's uh, running at 33 uh, rounds per minute uh, so you know it really sounds like yeah, probably they were going for an album and didn't have enough material for <laughs> for the album yeah. when they, but you know it's brilliant. I mean, I think that uh, for my own personal listening pleasure, <laughs> uh, it comes right after Jeopardy. The first three songs, side A of the of the EP, to me, it's one of the best song sequences ever, like in the history of, of rock music. Now you can hear uh, more psychedelic influences, like psychedelic pop influences via the 80s, obviously. Um for me, this is um, this is the this is my favorite thing of theirs that they did. I think it's because it's so short; uh, it feels a lot more considered in a way. Um, I like the psychedelic influences; they work a lot better. Uh, there's a there is something more poppy about this as well, but not obviously poppy, um, and a bit more gothy as well. I think. Well, off the off the back of that, uh, what was it eighty? Five. They brought out Heads and Hearts, yeah. uh, full album this time. A couple of interesting talking points in this one, I think. Again, uh, it starts 
pretty dark this record um, they've got quite introverted I think subject wise as a band um, and he uses this kind of interesting kind of strained bluesy vocal technique in that opening tune as well along with some pick guitar which feels like a bit of a new look for him I thought the second track by the way Total Recall anybody wonder <laughs> if that's anything to do with the film I, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole with this okay because I was like Total Recall they called the song Total Recall like is that a thing that people knew about because the film Total Recall was based on a Philip K. Dick yeah. short story but the Philip K. Dick short story was called We, we Can, Can Remember, Remember It For, it for wholesale. You mm-hmm. Wholesale yeah. so it wasn't called Total Recall and I couldn't find where Total Recall came from this is the first incidence of the phrase that I could find at all so I'm like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Um, but that, the song itself has a really good chorus. Yeah, it's um, great. Yeah, it's a good song. That. Yeah, and I actually really like the line in it. There must be a hole in your memory. There's something really striking about the way he delivers it. They must be in the story, man. I'm pretty sure the company's called Recall and the story and the story from what I remember. I think this is like the first half of this album is brilliant. I think that uh, unfortunately, I think the second half doesn't hold uh, as good uh, as the first uh, four or five tracks. It's a bit too long. <laughs> maybe if it had a couple of songs less, you know, and uh, maybe maybe the polish here is a bit too much on certain tracks, you know. Michael Dudley actually thinks the heads and heart is our worst record. He calls it a real low point, drab, lifeless, and miserable. Yeah, it's interesting. Right? Also, because a lot of people thought it was a return to form <laughs> yeah. when it came out. In fact, if you notice, I think it, it's got a lot of stars everywhere. Um, well, coming out of that then, into Thunder Up, which proved to be the, the, the last album of their career proper. It's quite an interesting opening because unlike Heads and Hearts, it, it starts really quite buoyant. It's sort of the opposite end of their spectrum. It's quite upbeat, almost jubilant, actually, at points in that, that opening song, Acceleration Group. Um, big guitar hooks in it. The, the band feel like a slightly older band and actually not all that much time has passed at this point, but it, not a lot from the album stayed with me. Um, I thought Hand of Love was kind of an interesting one. Um, I like that song it, Weirdly balladesque See the funny thing is I think it, it tries to be gorgeous But I think the vocal take Is kind of wobbly And ultimately the song Feels a bit forced So it's interesting That to you That one stands out As being quite good And to me Who's overall quite positive About the band I, I, I kind of didn't Feel very sincere It's it's funny because You know The The, the, the the band itself, I mean, I don't know about Adrian Borland, but uh, I remember uh, Michael Dudley saying uh, in an interview that this was one of the records that he holds dearest to his art <laughs> because they recorded it basically live in the studio with a very few overdubs. And so he says uh, it, it was a, a good experience, at least in the studio. I like Kinetic. I like Acceleration Group. I like uh, a few songs out of this. Uh, it's one of the records 
records that I've listened, I, I, it's not uh, my favorite record. Uh, even if uh, listening back to it, uh, preparing this uh, this show, I, I kind of re reevaluated it uh, in a positive way because you know I kind of like it. I mean, but I I I wouldn't recommend it as a, as a place to start or. My experience with this record is, is less uh, intense than uh, than the one I had with other ones. So um, both uh, Adrian Borland and Graham Bailey thought that this was their best album. Uh, Adrian, <laughs> Adrian Borland thought it was their best record because for the same reason because it was live and, and done in the studio and and Bailey called it the band's crowning glory. Curious that they they must think they went out in a high then to some extent. I remember Chris Dudley saying that the the, the two records they liked the most are Propaganda. And thunder up. So the very beginning and the very end of the band, <laughs> probably yeah. because during their like during their lifespan, things were pretty grim within the band. So probably he remembers the early days when probably there was enthusiasm and. Uh, uh, in the end, because probably I don't know, because I guess it looked like a pretty. They suffered a lot as a band, you know. Didn't look like a, an happy, an happy bunch, you know, uh, during their, uh, their so-called career. You know, I hate, I hate when people talk about say career, the career of a band. Um, <laughs> well, and that 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 brings us to the inevitable. Then it's uh, we should get dug into Jeopardy uh, and find out what the fuss is all about. All my problems loom larger than life I can't swallow another slice this was the first record and they were absolutely full of energy and I guess at this point people didn't know what to expect especially given that that first EP was a lot more garagey even for folks that had followed them then the small amount of people that might have been aware of them this would have been a change of direction very early on for them a big development so yeah I mean Ferro you're the boss you want to tell us a bit about this I mean to, to, set, to set the scene for listeners when this first came out, this album got five star reviews and sounds, Melody Maker and NME. Um, and whilst the sales weren't good, the critical reception was really pretty strong early on. Yeah, I mean, what can I say? I mean, uh, I am a huge fan of I Can't Escape Myself. It takes a lot of balls to open an album with a track like that. What a bolt. I mean, absolutely. Like a young band doing their first record and they start with this really sort of esoteric, clever, brooding, complex song. I'm sick and I'm tired of reasoning. Just want to break out, shake out this skin. I Honestly, it's only now that it really strikes me as just what a old decision it was because this could easily have been sort of mid-album track exactly know, once you'd sort of established yourself you 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 take a chance with your audience yeah. you know it's it's incredibly audacious they start almost from silence you know and, and then you you get this subtle groove kicking in and uh this because i mean it's one of the most fascinating albums of openers of all time in my mm -hmm. opinion yeah. and uh and the minimalism is fantastic you know the way it reminds really reminds me you know the first cure album three imaginary boys but done in a much better way <laughs> i mean I, I love three imaginary boys but this one like ups the ante when it comes to playing with 
very simple elements and getting the best out of them to create a, a song that has a unique mood and, and, and I, I, a, I, I can't get enough of, I can't get enough of that song uh, There's a couple of things about this song that I think are quite interesting first would be for me as a huge Fugazi fan I think there's a lot of elements in this song that are very right. reminiscent of Fugazi I, I mean instrumentally yes the the sparseness of the guitar the, the little uh, the, the dynamic that is used you know the way the chords are struck then muted and all those kind of little touches that's very Fugazi I mean all the way through Fugazi especially like Red Medicine that kind of era um, I think one of the best parts of the song is in, in the chorus which is a very short chorus really when he says I can't escape myself and there's a backing vocal that comes in I, 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 I. and it's the kind of backing vocal that Guy Picciotto does in a lot of Fugazi stuff a kind of slightly off note of just a yelp in the background shake up this So I think there's a lot of things in it that remind me of, of what went into making up Fugazi. Maybe when you marry it with like four or something like that. Uh, but also, the, the whole song is built on tension. The entire song is all about tension. I mean, he even says tension in it. You know, it's uh, so many feelings pent up in here. He alludes to that. The wee snarling guitar interjections that appear about 2.35 are just like a kind of bubbling over of that. The little explosions of guitar at the ends of certain lines. That aspect of it is is partly why I said I think it's such an impressive introduction to any group. Um, I always thought it's always kind of weird to be on the other side for once. Like I often forget what it feels like to be on the other side. Um, But usually when I'm listening to a band's discography, I'll listen to all their albums before I come to the one we're going to do just so I can get a feel for like where they are in context of their career and I kind of wish I hadn't done that with this band because this song really sort of exemplifies everything that I dislike about post-punk in every single way um, this keyboard sound in particular just really hurts my ears on I Can't Escape Myself and just the, the, the poor face nature of the vocal as well just really doesn't do anything for me Yeah it's definitely a challenging sound um, I can appreciate how that could be quite divisive yeah Mm. Um, one final thing that I think is quite interesting in hindsight, obviously because of Adrian's passing and the way it, it, the way it happened, you know, people say that it wasn't quite as obvious uh, what what was happening with him. His depression, obviously, he was undiagnosed schizophrenic in, in these days. Um, it's right there. The title, <laughs> the, the, the title of the track, I can't escape myself. Like, yeah. like yeah. left alone with the one I most fear. Exactly. You know, I think there there are a lot of clues. Yeah, absolutely. Even, even this 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 part of their career. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. This, uh, as you said, you mentioned the dynamic, you know, and that's what, for instance, makes me prefer this album to from the Lion's Mouth. You know, is that the dynamic aspect of the sound is very respected here. Like you get all the nuances, and, and when when the, when the songs explode, they really explode, and they sometimes they, they explode from almost from silence or like for, with a very a perceivable crescendo. You know, I mean, uh, whether whether the production on the Lion's Mouth is great, but you know, it's kind kind of more homogeneous also in terms of, of, of dynamics yeah. internal dynamics of the song so yes. this song is a perfect example it, 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 it encapsulated you know I mean it's 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 incredible I mean it's um, one of my favourite so songs of all time so and the thing is it's, it's such a bold start that it's a hard thing to follow but they, yeah. they do follow it in a kind of big way with Heartland the yeah. second song Silly 
uh, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of things that can be said about this song. I mean, we talked about B's shrill organ, that really propulsive, energetic quality that that has. Um, I think there's a lot about this song that really reminds me of the early days of Husker Do. You know, that, that yeah. there's a really fuzzy, fizzy tunefulness to it, you know, and a, a sort of sense of momentum. The chord change that happens underneath the line, you got to believe that third time, I think, is just inspired. It's such a, a like a clever, lean bit of songwriting. I think I really think it's a great bit of sequencing too because you do take that quite esoteric, difficult first song, but then the second tune is just yeah, it's just full, yeah, fast, exactly. full of momentum and energy. Yeah. So uh, going back to that mood that we kind of hinted at, and I can't escape myself the sort of uh, the early signs of his depression, maybe uh, out of need. Again, in its title, but also I think in the lines like "I hate the quiet times, I need some company." I think that's quite a troubling lyric, especially mm. with the, the the benefit of hindsight. The song itself really broody, quite spacious. Um, yeah. I think again, bizarrely mature writing for a band that's on the third track of its first album. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I like this uh, sparse feeling that that you know that the song has and compressed energy, compressed uh, urgency. Well, I think saying it's more straightforward is, uh, is is probably the reason why I like it more. I think the bass line itself is more engaging. I think the synth is a less annoying for me in this song, and there's some really nice crunchy guitar sounds on it as well, which which I really which I really enjoyed. I mean, I love how they play with uh, so few elements every time. You know, I mean, I I love this um, dynamic that they have, uh, especially the first side of the album. You know, between uh, explosive songs and songs that kind of build up the tension. Uh, the the dynamic uh, comes to the fore again in track four. Words words fail me. Actually, it sounds like cut to me, Ferruccio. <laughs> Yeah, it's really reminiscent of that physical world EP. This is one of their most direct and yeah, yeah, it's, it's, and, and forceful. Uh, it also has a little ska-like quality to the chorus. Almost, that's true, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good tune. I mean, I always liked it. I mean, I'm glad that you think that it sounds like us a little bit. And uh, I don't know. It's got quite a 70s rock vibe to it, I think, almost, hasn't it? I think it feels more in line with proto-punk. Um, I like the brass on it. It works really well. But when it's yeah. all in the mix, I prefer it. Um, but yeah, it's pretty cool. Then we get to serious business of myself, which we spoke business. about. We, yeah, we spoke about that at length earlier on, you know, thematically. So we don't need to revisit that. But um, what do you make of this one? I think this one is it's a pretty epic tune. You know, it's proper post-punk tune in terms of uh, delivery and in terms of atmosphere. For me, it, it's kind of much like the first song. It kind of typifies post-punk for me in a way that I don't enjoy. I think the atmosphere is pretty cool, but I just I find it so long and repetitive. 
you know, and it just kind of pulls me out of it. And I do find the whole, the, who the hell makes these missiles vocal refrain really annoying. So it just pulls me out of the, like, the atmosphere of the song. I think there's something about the vocal delivery that I just can't quite enjoy. So that would be the end of uh, side one. Uh, and they started side two in fairly robust fashion mm-hmm. with Hayday, which would actually, was actually the only single. To yes, also, yes, so. was single. Which again, you know, kicks in loads of piss and vinegar. Actually, really reminds me of uh, the early Idlewild stuff. The really rough, scrappy early Idlewild material. I got a Stooges um, vibe from that. I like a bit of the Stooges. And, 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 and I have to be honest, I love an upstroke bassline. You know, <laughs> like a, a bassline played on the on the pick, on the up pick. Mm. Uh, yep, energetic tune, catchy. Clearly, they considered it a really good foot forward. It's not my favourite in the album, but I can I can see why it seemed like a good. Ambassador. Yeah, agree, agree. I, I like it as more straight up punk. I like it very much, and uh, I think it's a great choice for opening side two because it balances with side one. You know, mm-hmm. you have a side one that really drags you in slowly with this uh, this uh, sparse, uh, you know, sounds, and uh, you know, and, uh, instead of side on side two, you open up with a, with a song that it breaks, you know, breaks down the walls. You know, it's just immediate energy. You know, and uh, so yeah, it's a typical rocker from <laughs> post post punk rocker from uh, from early the early sound, and uh, I really like it you know so um the title track number seven arrives second track on side b you know initially i feel that this song just for the first few moments swaggers a bit mm-hmm. which is unusual in the context of the record they don't do that a lot um, it's got a really cool line in it we are young but are we strong the chorus however despite that initial swagger lands much more urgently and with a, with a hint of anxiety and yeah that shrill organ is back in a big way for this tune mm-hmm. you know it's actually at this point that I realised that the organ uh, reminds me a bit of the use of the organ in the Murder City Devils they're a band that really got off on that very caustic, corded organ sound. Loads of treble on it, you know. Yeah, it's one of the most uh, like psychedelic, if you want tracks, if you if you if you can if you can use this this term. And uh, yeah, organ driven. I mean. Um it's got this desperate lyrics and desperate atmosphere, which is common to, to most of the album. Yeah. <laughs> and I quite like the I like the loud the loud sort of quiet dynamic on it, and the bass line's got a nice. Uh, in fact, you yeah. a lot a lot of the guitar tones and bass tones on this are quite cool. I like this. I like those elements of this song, um, and it's got a really nice outro as well. I enjoyed the outro. Well, the, you'd actually made a comment earlier on about gothiness, and I think the eighth track in it, Night versus Day, is probably where I, I heard a real kind of gothy yeah. element. It's much cooler and a bit more measured. Mm. I mean, it's still got a really cacophonous quality to it. Um, I think there's like a weird stabbed key motif that, that kind of goes throughout, and it's got a sort of anti-chorus as well, a bit of a noise out. Um, the vocals in it are a bit lower and darker, and it's maybe the vocals that are giving me that slightly gothier feel. 
It's funny because this song uh, was one of the songs that uh, was already recorded for the propaganda demos, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or, and uh, it's funny it does because... It sounds slightly different. Yeah, yeah but... But strangely enough, you, you can already hear all the variety within the band's sound on those demos. Because, for instance, Words Fail Me, which is on the opposite spectrum of this song, if you think about it, in terms of sound and atmosphere, uh, is also coming from those sessions. Yeah. So, you know, and uh, so, so basically, you know, this uh, variety of atmospheres that, uh, after all, you know, um, characterizes uh, this album was already present on, on the demos. And uh, it's very, yeah. It's a very uh, atmospheric track, and uh, the, the place in the set list is absolutely perfect because it kind of uh, prepares for what's coming next, which is the grand finale of the album. Yeah, they don't give you a long time to catch your breath, though, and when they, when Resistance hits track nine, um, it immediately sets off with this really urgent guitar lead. Um, it's I think it's a quite an angsty punk yeah. refrain mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, organ complements it and it kind of motors along on the on the back of that. The, the bass is on a mission in this tune. Um, I, I quite like the fact that this was you know it's a little bit again a little bit cliched, but I like the sort of political call to arms nature of this resist. I can I can imagine people being a bit sniffy about it, but there's something just quite earnest as well that's sort of admirable uh, there's a great breakdown in this about a minute 50 where the guitar goes to be quite yeah. um, sporadic mm. It just frankly just rocks. Yeah, like that. Um, yeah, and uh, there's a there's a great guitar hook that arrives for this big explosive ending with the with the resist refrain. It's a, it's a solid tune this one especially arriving so late they've, they've, they've put a pretty strong track mm-hmm. to kind of counterbalance the earlier numbers yeah definitely if the song had a, a less of a, a post punk production and was like you know, produced as a, as, a, as, a, as a punk song like it could it could belong to the repertoire of bands like I don't know the Clash themselves or any other punk band of the era you know and it, it really shows their 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 punk roots uh, and um, probably comes from the experience of the outsiders uh, not the song itself but you know this kind of this kind of some writing and this kind of energy um, well, another ingredient that they, they bring to the party is uh, Unwritten Law, which we mentioned, obviously, is on the Physical World EP. Mm-hmm. Mark, you said that er- mm-hmm. Sorry. Mark, Mark, you said that earlier on. Um, quite a long tune, uh, but it, all, it 
almost sounds like a different band uh, when yeah. it initially arrives. It's got a very crowdy feel, which is clearly another aspect of the post-punk movement that was happening around about the same time. Um, the chorus in this one has a big-time Interpol feel. I mean, you could really hear where Interpol got some ideas. And it goes on a few journeys throughout the course of the song, you know, jamming on that theme for quite long passages. Um, and I think there's some backwards samples kind of threaded through it as well, aren't there? It sounds like backwards drums that are yeah, yeah. interspersed. Yeah. Again, I, for which I know you're a big fan of the, the initial EP, so I'm assuming this is a standout one for you as well. Yeah, it's 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 one of the most dramatic tracks on the album, and uh, yeah, it really sets up for the for the final track, which is another very minimalistic tune. Yeah, so desire is a really distinctive way to, to go out. You know, that it's almost a playful intro. Yeah. In my words, in my eyes. Can't you feel the desire? We will wait for the night. Um, you can tell they're toying with the minimalism in it, I think. You know, the kick and the hat, then the bass and the vocal arrive. And um, the track, right from the start, I think, has a sense of promise in terms of the promise of what that melody and that construct could emerge as in about three minutes' time. Um, sub- subject-wise, I think lyrically it's, it's quite reminiscent of Joy Division as a as a tune. Uh, I think you know when the snare and the keys though come in, it uh, it's, it's only fifty seconds into the song, but because of you know these songs go along so fast, it, it feels like it. Some time has passed. It's a superb lift. Keep in touch, keep in track of this thing called desire. It's uh, it's, it's an interesting ending, an interesting ending. The album finishes in an equally esoteric style. Absolutely. Uh, Again, there's a there's a um, I can say there's a, an equilibrium, you know, <laughs> uh, between uh, in the whole album, uh, which is uh, uh, suggested by by the setlist itself. You know, it ends up in the same minimalistic way in which it has started, uh, also in a kind of uh, almost unfinished feeling. You know, you have the feeling that uh, this is gonna lead up to something else. You know, and uh, it almost sounds like uh, you know uh, something that bands like young marble giants were doing like this you know this using just one or two elements to to make a a song to create create a huge atmosphere so i think it's a perfect ending for an album yeah no i think uh for me i like that it's understated an understated ending another downer song on a record which has got quite a few of them um the only thing that kind of really kind of I didn't like about it was when the guitars and the keyboard started playing the same thing at the same time the the way the tones kind of come together kind of Set my teeth on edge a little bit, um, but yeah, I think the song itself is is all right. Yeah, and the album, and the album, I'm going to sit in the fence for this one. I think <laughs> you don't need to. We're all we're all adults here. We can certainly uh, deal with a little bit of criticism. Uh it just doesn't grab me. You know, this kind of music is really difficult for me to get into. I, I like big guitars. I like I like I like big things. I'm a maximalist. I'm not really a minimalist, I suppose. When I think about it, you know. So the music. It wouldn't really be something that I'd go back to. Um, however, they are an unsung band of this kind and from this era. Sonically, they're very important because a lot of bands went on to do things which are just like this and probably not even as good as this, to be honest. So that's why I have to. I must sit on the fence because personally, don't really like it. You know, being pragmatic about it, there's definitely a case for it being 
in our discography? Yeah, I think from my perspective, as I, as I mentioned at the start, I was surprised at the quality of the songwriting. When I initially heard I Can't Escape Myself, I had no idea it was the first track on the album, for starters. Uh, I just thought it was a really interesting bit of arrangement, and as I say, my Fugazi tastes were firing. Um, I I think, I think they're a perfect case for Unsung, in the sense that, yeah, they seem to have arrived with a lot of bands that seem to do quite well, and if I'm being perfectly honest, sometimes with those bands I don't entirely get it. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I don't entirely get why this band didn't do better, certainly here, than, than they did. Um, you know, I, I used that analogy of Frank Grimes from The Simpsons, and I really, really hope people give that the respect it deserves, because it is one of the all-time best episodes of that show. And I find that character, that, that character of the, of the frustrated, resentful guy who brings about his own self-destruction through that resentment so compelling and I think I'm not saying necessarily I mean Adrian had mental illness as well and there was a lot of factors that that led to his early death but clearly one of them is the fact that he felt they should have done better and I agree and and I think I find it very relatable you know Adrian, Frank Grimes, all these people that, that just the sense of injustice that you feel mm. when you watch people rocket to stardom and you're like, we're doing that. In fact, we're doing that better. What's going on there? And, you know, we spoke about the press and the British press in particular at the time were so so pompous and condescending and so self-aware that it must have been infuriating and that, that it, they were insurmountable odds. Once they take a dislike to you, you know, it's very hard to change that. Um, and despite the fact they got positive reviews, they don't seem to have really ever been held in the same high esteem that some of their peers were. And I just think that's really interesting. And it's a really interesting sort of Shakespearean type character. And uh, they sort of represent that to me. And, you know, and to boot, I think it's a really good record. Uh, I can't imagine listening to too much of their other material, if I'm being honest. There's bits and bobs I do really like. Um, from the lion's mouth is good um, but this seems to be the one that's the Goldilocks zone for me mm-hmm. um, so yeah I think it's a good choice and I'm I'm right behind it yeah if you want some final words for me mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean I, I obviously almost I, I would say I don't know if something like objectivity ever existed but you know uh, in the context let's say of, of the success that the other bands had uh, basically with the same ingredients, you know, in terms of sonically speaking, uh, of the sound, it's really surprising that they didn't get uh, the recognition that other bands got. Uh, because of what you mentioned, or what Chris just mentioned, which is like the quality of the songwriting, uh, the uh, the performances, I mean, and the... Uh, the sound that they had, the fact that they basically ticked all the boxes. I mean, in terms of energy, in terms of uh, uh, of intensity, and uh, etc. So I, I absolutely love the way this album brings together several elements, which made the the punk post punk sound, as we just mentioned, which coming from influences by the Stooges, by some even for, by some uh, quirky glam rock like uh, Roxy Music and. Uh, Obviously, the punk sound and post-punk sound. So they, they bridge at mid sixties garage sometimes. So it's got a lot of different uh, atmosphere, which are to be brought together uh, in a almost perfect way, I would say. So it's one of, one of my favorite post-punk albums of all time. 
It's very interesting uh, that, you know, in the UK, it hasn't uh, been successful, as successful as other albums. Uh, the criticism uh, towards uh, Adrian's Borland's lyrics, to me, are uh, absolutely misplaced, because even if you think about uh, some of the post-punk or, or gothic or dark lyrics of the time, most of the time they hide nothing behind the metaphors and the symbolism. Uh, at least he was speaking his mind. He was speaking his mind, and uh, we, we, we talked about it before. He was make, asking questions in a very sincere way, and uh, I think this, this resonates with the times we are living now, where uh, you know some of our everyday choices are need to be put into question, and the way he does it is with extreme intensity, extreme sincerity, and uh, I think this holds up to the times in a great way. So, you know, I'm in love with this record since I'm uh, 18 or 19. And uh, it's one of the records that really I will take with me for all my life, probably. So. Well, it is up to the public to decide if uh, if they agree with Fair or not. So go on to our Twitter page and if you agree, hit yes. And if you disagree, hit no. I mean, this is that simple. <laughs> uh, it'll take you two seconds. Uh, so should we do the Nexus? We should. We should do the Nexus. Okay, cool. A complicated series of connections between different things. Do I go first or will I go first? Well, first of all, Pharaoh hasn't done one because uh, Brexit. Because Brexit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they put a tax on Nexus uh, from Europe, yeah, so, I can, so I'm sorry, guys. That's cause already the cost is five hundred. These guys, times, these so. guys don't pay me enough <laughs> for uh, to get the Nexus from me from Europe. Uh, Mark, yeah, go first. Cool. I did this on the bus on the way home today. <laughs> um, nothing to be proud of. So the way that this works is uh, one of our listeners gives us a historical figure, a fictional figure, a, a person basically of any kind, artist, anything, any, any, character, any character of any kind, and we must link that person to the artist of the week. So uh, our good pal and frequent contributor, David Bright, decided that we should try and link the band the sound to a guy called Thomas McRocklin who is an English guitar player, music producer and mastering engineer who is perhaps most well known in certain circles for being a prodigy of Steve Vai um, real name Thomas McLaughlin. he was born in Newcastle and began playing guitar at the age of 8 was noticed by Steve Vai and was then taken under his wing so yeah, he has since went on to forge something of a career for himself as a virtuoso guitar player. So, how am I going to link the sound, the this band from the A's to Mr. Thomas McLaughlin slash McRocklin? Well, I'm glad you asked. I can do this quite simply. So, <laughs> um, the first song on Jeopardy is the song I Can't Escape Myself. That song featured in the seventh episode of a TV show called The Young Pope. Have you guys, you guys heard of it or seen it? Heard of it. So basically it's this TV show where uh, Jude Law plays a, a young cardinal from New York who gets basically elected Pope and he decides that he's going to use his powers of po- of being the Pope to make the Catholic Church even more conservative and by doing so will be punishing his parents who abandoned him when he was young. 
some some mental stuff, but that's a long and short of it. He gets involved in debauchery and all kinds of non non all kinds of things that Catholic priests are not supposed to do, basically. Um, so yeah, that this song features in the seventh episode of that. When I did some research on what other TV shows or films the sound were synced on, I couldn't find any. This was the only one I could find, mm-hmm. which is which is oh. pretty. Unless any, unless anybody else out there can prove me wrong, but I'm happy for them to do that. But this is the only one I could find, which was a, a boon when, when I found it. I was like, yes, I've got a link. So um, from there, we go to uh, Jude Law. He, he starred in a film in 2001 called Enemy the Gates. Don't know if you guys seen that film. I think I have. It's pretty. I was under. under I haven't. Yeah, it's a pretty okay film. I mean, the story's more interesting. The story of the film is more interesting. The film itself, it's a, it falls. He he plays a a guy called Vasily Zietev, who's like a Russian sniper, and he gets involved in the sniper battle with the best sniper in the Nazi army, uh, who is played by Mister Ed Harris. The alleged dual sniper's name is Erwin Kornig, um, but he's played by Ed Harris in the film. Ed Harris has been in quite a lot of films, probably most notably for me in The Truman Show, where he plays uh, Joseph, is the guy's name, um, the guy that created The Truman Show. He's like the sort of overlord of it. But he uh, he also starred in a documentary film about George A. Romero called Dead On, The Life and Cinema of George A. Romero, and it's basically about the whole career of George A. Romero. Lots of interviews with him, with his collaborators, with all of his admirers, to kind of show the impact of his work on the horror genre. One of the people that is interviewed in it is, of course, Mr. John Carpenter. John Carpenter, famous director, famous musician as well, mostly known as a musician that hasn't done a film for quite some time. He's done a few collaborations, including some with people that we know, in some cases know quite well. Um, He's also collaborated with a band called Gunship. Have you guys ever heard of the band Gunship? No, I'm sorry. So yeah, yeah, that's fine. You shouldn't. (laughs) I'd be surprised if you heard of them. You ever heard of a band called Fightstar? Yes. Yeah, so two of the guys that are in Fightstar um, went on to form this synthwave side project called Gunship. And it's all kind of based on like you know eighties dystopian stuff. So he he appears on their second album, Dark Dark All Day. He's one of the collaborators on it, including the writer of Alter Carbon, Richard K. Morgan, Cat uh, Von D, <laughs> Will Wheaton. Uh, a whole bunch of people have collaborated with with these guys, uh, including our good friend Mr. Thomas McLaughlin, um, who is on a single called The Video Game Champion, where he contributes guitar. So there you go. James. Oh wow! You thought of all this on the bus? Yes, all on the bus. Yeah, as I was negotiating as the bus. As he was, was. was standing there, and the guys like, "Could you just pay for your ticket?" Mark's just standing there thinking all yeah. of this. As he's, uh, I'm impressed. <laughs> as as, as, uh, as the bus was negotiating, protesters for COP twenty twenty six. Sorry. Um, okay, my turn. Uh, the artwork. From the cover of From the Lion's Mouth is Daniel in the Lion's Den by the artist Breton Riviere from 1872, I believe. Um, that is obviously based on the, the, the Bible story. Daniel was thrown into the Lion's Den by Darius the Mede, um, who was actually likely a fictitious ruler uh, placed between two real rulers, uh, Belshazzar and Cyrus, uh, Cyrus the Great. And and during Daniel's time in the lion's den, he is supposed to have had 
a series of visions as detailed in the second half of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, The book of Daniel goes on to describe these and they are mostly end times revelations uh, and famously they include four great beasts rising from the sea and the first three beasts are described in quite graphic detail, like kind of monstrous in the kind of old time style. Uh, The fourth one's a bit unusual though and it's not really made that explicit what it is but the fourth beast has ten horns, has teeth of iron and brass claws and I think historians have kind of considered it to be a depiction of the Roman Empire, Um, you know the brass and the iron and all these Mm -hmm. kind of things and from amongst the the ten horns on this beast supposedly sprouts a smaller horn that causes three of the bigger ones to fall out the smaller horn then grows bigger than any of the other horns, all the while the horn speaking boastfully and with the countenance of a man so the horn gets like human features and starts boasting and bragging and is very arrogant, I mean that's some like I ate a lot of cheese before bedtime. Yeah. Um, and opinions on that aspect vary, but in sort of many modern apocalyptic religious interpretations, uh, this is seen to represent an antichrist figure, the, the the small horn that grows into the big horn, being an antichrist figure emerging from within a cabal of ten world leaders to seize control of Earth. Um, it has a lot of parallels with Revelation uh, 13 and uh, the antichrist description, ten horns, things like that. Now, as uh, end times revelations go, another figure, another religious figure who claimed to be receiving revelations directly from God was a guy called Erval LeBaron. Um, Erval LeBaron had 13 wives and believed in blood atonement. Now, he was he was a Mormon. His father, not even him, his father had been excommunicated when the Mormon church officially abandoned polygamy in 1890 and his father had moved south to set up his own church, I think it was in New Mexico, and continue shagging multiple women. Um, <laughs> As you do. After, yeah, for Ervil, that's E-R-V-I-L, and yes, that is evil with an R in it, um, <laughs> After splitting with his brother over the leadership of the sect, once his dad passed away, Ervil went and set up his own little sect called Church of the Firstborn of the Lamb of God, and he then had his brother murdered. Why is that name familiar? Um, That name's familiar to me. I don't know if the listeners want to know too much about what you get (laughs) up to. Um, He was actually convicted of his brother's murder and escaped further prosecution on a technicality or jail sentence or murder or whatever happens in New Mexico uh, and then he promptly tried to have his other brother murdered the guy who had then taken over the original sect after he'd murdered the original mm-hmm. brother he wasn't initially successful with that um, he may well have been in the long term we don't know uh, he ordered multiple other murders over the next few years usually involving the help of immediate family members and that actually included his own pregnant 17 year old daughter who was trying to leave his cult at the time all in all it's sort of estimated that he's behind about 20 deaths and following his own death uh, he was found in his jail cell with a damaged throat and it's worth noting that the coroner registered the verdict of suicide um, they believe that it, this is no joke they believe that he punched himself in his own throat to crush his own larynx and windpipe um, or that wow. he might have taken pills uh, which is all very vague difference. <laughs> <laughs> anyway it turns out a lot of people weren't too keen on him um, because after his death, many of his followers and associates died, including a number of like people who'd been implicated in murders on his behalf uh, and also including that brother that had originally survived. He died in a car accident two days after Erville's death. So yeah, it was all pretty messy. Um, but in the 1993 movie of 
uh, Ervo LeBaron's life uh, named Prophet of Evil, LeBaron was played by Mr. Brian Dennehy. Um, and his son Isaac, uh, an unfortunate lad, uh, was played by an actor called Daniel Cooksey. Uh, Daniel Cooksey is actually a famous animation voice actor and he was also one of the main characters in the show Different Strokes, which is massive if you're American. And he is, probably more importantly for us, John Connor's pal from Terminator 2. Oh, the wee guy, oh wow. The, the wee raj in the bike, yeah. Um, for the record, that wee guy Isaac who he plays in the film, um, testified against members of the cult and afterwards moved in with his sister and her partner and was found dead just a few days later. And whilst, again, it was recorded as suicide, many investigators believe he was murdered by his sister and her partner as revenge for him testifying against the cult. Anyway, the guy, Daniel Cooksey, that I mentioned, John Connor's pal, different strokes, animation voice actor, was also the singer in a band called Bad For Good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bad For Good was put together by Interscope Records. Um, it featured Brooks Wackerman yep. on drums. And it also featured the guitarist Thomas McRocklin. Uh, it had actually been built around him because he was at the time the youngest person ever signed to the label and a bit of a guitar genius yep. having uh, played... Was it the age of eight when he played with Steve Vai in that video? And he, yeah. he was on stage at 11. Mm. And Steve Vai produced that album. That's right, mm-hmm. uh, and he'd been playing since he was four. Anyway, it's crap guitar. I mean, it sounds like shit, but he's really good at it. Yeah. Played in Dragon Force, that's all you need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, but there you go, Thomas McRocklin via loads of murder and religious nut jobs. Yep, so that was really uh, good. That's good. You know what? Uh, you mentioned uh, the young Pope, the series, and the director, uh, Paolo Sorrentino, mm-hmm. is Italian, and he's, uh, he's from that generation that... Uh, probably discovered all these bands because I think it's in his late 50s or something now and uh, he is a huge post-punk fan oh, wow. so I guess that the, the, the title I Can't Escape Myself comes directly from from yeah. the reference to the sound uh, it also uh, another film of his is um, this, this Must Be The Place which is taken from uh, yeah. uh, the, the, the famous Talking Heads song mm. so I guess I guess the reference is, is, is very straightforward I mean direct in this case Join so, yeah. the dots. <laughs> yeah. So, um, obviously, a big feature of this episode has been the role of the press back in the eighties. Uh, the snobby, especially British press, uh, NME, all that lot, and their opinions. And it just so happens that that is going to be a recurring theme next week because we have something quite special in store. Well, is it special? It shouldn't be special, but it turns out it is Mm -hmm. because he's just finished his effigies and fucking Dave Weaver is going to be back in the game. David fucking Weaver, can you believe it? The most special of all guests. (laughs) (laughs) So, we came across this article about Pitchfork albums that had been horribly, horribly, horribly underrated and the magazine is now doing a revisionist history of the albums that they made fun of and they now accept they were just fucking being smart arses and talking shit. So we thought, wouldn't it be interesting to do a mixtape, which we've not done in a while, do a mixtape that was the albums most severely underrated by Pitchfork at their smart arsiest and thereby give us a window to commentate on the world of music journalism. 
which it turns out me, Mark and David are all horribly familiar with and I'm sure you are in your own way too, Ferruccio. Absolutely. We did some music journalism for quite a while. So we are going to talk about that, what motivates them, what's wrong with us, what's wrong with them, what a bunch of wankers, mm. all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, we're going to pick out records that Pitchfork has shat on that didn't deserve it. And I think we might also, for good luck, pick out records that Pitchfork has wanted and that are absolutely bollocks. Yes. It's going to be a fun, yeah. fun episode. I'm looking forward yeah. to it. It's going to be a belter. Uh, and for that episode, Nexus. Uh, better tell Dave this. We're going to do a Nexus. Obviously, uh, we'll each be picking a record, and we'll each have to Nexus it, so there won't be any overlap. Hopefully, and ah, uh, so the Nexus for next week is by Vicky, mm-hmm. and it's me. <laughs> So we need to like Christopher Cusack to each of our records. That's going to be really easy. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> hmm, it's not really an Nexus then, is it? <laughs> well, that's gonna that's gonna have some interesting uh, results, especially from Dave, I suspect. <laughs> Please give my greetings to Dave. It's a long time. Yeah. We will do. Ferruccio, thanks so much. As no problem. You are just so full of knowledge uh, and effusing over this album that you clearly absolutely love yeah. and understand why. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to get you back, obviously. Any any ideas what you might want to cover next time you're on? Yeah, I have a suggestion, actually. I mean, uh, well, I, I'm going to do my mini Nexus now, very short one. <laughs> you know, Hugh Jones has produced uh, the second uh, album by, by Sound, you know, from the Lion's Mouth. And uh, he's been a huge uh, producer for post-punk and, uh, you know, new wave in general. And uh, especially, I would say, straightforward post-punk rather than new wave. Uh, And he also produced a band which was born out of the ashes of the undertones called Death Petrol Emotion. Yeah. And they they made like three or four albums in the mid eighties uh, from the from the mid eighties until the early, very early nineties, and I think at least their debut and the second album the debut is called Manic Pop Thrill, the second album is called Babel, are two great albums that have always to me are at the moment almost forgotten, but I think that they're like fantastic records that should be should be reevaluated and um, reassessed. They're very unsung <laughs> currently, at I least. Believe you. So next time we see Ferruccio, it may well be in the context of that petrol emotion. Yep. Yeah. Well, you take care of yourself. We'll see if we you can too. convince Dave to rustle up a wee effigy of you and see if you can use that for anything. <laughs> and Mark, we will be back remarkably soon. Remarkably such, soon. Such, such is our schedule right now. <laughs> and we'll be back remarkably soon with the man himself, David John Weaver, to discuss what a bunch of cocks music journalists are. Looking forward to it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Ciao ragazzi. Bye. Ciao ragazzi. Ciao. Ciao da Bologna. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. 
Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.